I think for a lot of people, when they say Jew of color, they think about it like a child with divorced parents. Like on the weekends, you're Jewish, and then during the week, you're black. It's like you sort of go from one <laughs> yes. to the other, oh my God. but not that you are both at the same time, in the same place. Mm -hmm. That's just something people have had a lot of difficulty getting their minds around. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashi Denu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. I'm joined today by my co-host, Rabbi Sandra Lawson. Hi, Sandra. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so glad to be with you. And I'm also so glad to welcome our guest, Dr. Amanda Mbuvi. Amanda recently joined the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College as our Vice President for Academic Affairs and Dean. She is an accomplished scholar and has extensive experience in nonprofit leadership, and she is the author of a wonderful book published in 2016 called Belonging in Genesis, Biblical Israel and the Politics of Identity Formation. Amanda is also the first Jew of color to lead a major American rabbinical school. It is such a blessing to work with her and to know her. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, before we get started, um, I want to just check in with you and one, see how you're doing. I know you and your family made the move from North Carolina and you bought a house and now you're in Philadelphia and you're getting, you know, acclimated to a, a new school and students. So how's, all, how's, how's all, all that going? Oh, thanks for asking. It's it's going well. It's, a, it's an adventure. Um, I think... The real challenge in some ways is for my family because I moved into this wonderful RRC community and it took a little longer for them to get sort of launched into the world and, and connected to new community and new people. So I'm really glad that the kids started school this week. I think that will be really important for them to be out and be meeting people and making connections. Yeah, moving is so intense. And 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 it is, um, there's such consonances. And there are so many ways where it's obvious that you're a good fit for the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Um, and God willing, that's true for your family as well. And that this move for, for that, that was, you know, motivated by you will work out for everybody as well. Thank you. I think it will. It just takes time. Yeah. yeah. And the students I've talked to are just really excited that you're there and are looking forward to, to learning with you and um, learning from you and your guidance and leadership in the future. Thanks. It's, it's been really fun spending time with them. And especially mm -hmm. last week, getting to be with the incoming students and in a lot of ways, really feeling like one of them because I'm not only because I'm new and I'm starting as they're new and starting, but I think also a lot of them were expressing this feeling of kind of finding their place and finding their people here. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely been my experience and it's been very powerful and wonderfully confusing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in the best possible ways. That's good. We hear that also. Um, I mean, this podcast, folks beyond the Reconstructionist movement, listen for sure. Mm -hmm. And we I, we hear it also from folks who find their way into a Reconstructionist synagogue. Sometimes it's because of a life cycle event or or some kind of program that brings them in, and all of a sudden they find they 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 find their people and they find a sense of place of both settling in and also that pushes them um, and prods them in the best possible, the most growthful ways. And, you know, I think that's a beautiful vision of community, what we want. Um, I guess I would add, and that 
like we are a community, the Reconstructions Rabbinical College, we know we will be transformed by you. That's one of the reasons we brought you in. And I, I think that community at its best, it both embraces and transforms, ideally with excitement, or at least without a tremendous amount of resistance, that each new person um, expands and offers new opportunities for growth. Yeah. And it's one of the most exciting things and, and challenging in some ways things about colleges is that with each new class of students, the community changes substantially. And there's always this work in progress. There's always this change, this evolution. And it's really exciting to experience that. So, you know, for our listeners um, who can't see us, um, you know, Amanda and I are both uh, people of color. And more specifically, we're both black women, um, you know, in roles that um, that have not traditionally been done by by women or particularly people of color. So as, as the new dean of the, of the Reconstructions Rabbinical College, the, the Pew study came out, the, the most recent Pew study came out. Um, and I sort of look at the most recent Pew study on top of the one that came out a few years earlier. Both of those articulate the changing demographics of the Jewish community. And the Pew study, this current Pew study in particular says, you know, like 15% of American Jews under the age of 30, which is a sizable demographic at RRC, uh, you know, are Jews of color. And the Jews of color initiative study that came out in its effort in the survey and in its effort to sort of tell the stories of people of color, so asking the question, who are, who are Jews of color? Um, and also talked a lot about the experiences of, of Jews of color, where it shouldn't surprise anyone on this call right now, um, that 80% of Jews of color in the United States experience um, uh, some form of discrimination, either racism or discrimination in Jewish spaces. I'm saying all this to say, as a person uh, in a leadership position in a Jewish organization, um, how, how is that going to shape your leadership? And or just whatever, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, there are a lot of levels to it for me. I think on a personal level, it's just really powerful to have moved to that space, um, the space of racist opposition to my parents' marriage um, through some of the things that I've experienced in communities with people assuming that I don't belong or things like that, to not only being sort of accepted, but to be in a position of leadership. It's, it's I can't even find words for it. It's such a powerful, it's a powerful um experience, it's a powerful journey to kind of have moved through all those um, spaces in that way. In terms of my leadership, one of the things I'm really excited to do is to, to open up and sort of nuance the thinking that goes into what it means to be a Jew of color, because I think people are starting to be aware of that as a category. Um, but in a lot of ways, I think the way in which they conceive that category is still really limited. So I think for a lot of people, when they say Jew of color, they, they think about it like, like a child with divorced parents. Like on the weekends, you're Jewish, and then during the week, you're Black. It's, it's like you sort of go from one <laughs> yes. to the other, oh my God. but not that you are both at the same time, in the same place, as the same person. I think mm -hmm. that's just something people have had a lot of difficulty getting their minds around. And so it's exciting to be in a position to not only embody that, but to think about what that means for rabbinical education um, in working with students and thinking about how students think about themselves as rabbis and how students think about the communities they serve and how they help people in the communities they serve think about each other and about the world. Thank you for that. That is so, I'm oh, sorry. That, yeah, that's so powerful because one of the things that I'm often telling people 
when I when I give talks or when I'm interacting with with um, other members of the Jewish community who are not people of color, is that um, I'm a whole person and I see my Jewishness filtered through or um, I can't separate out my queerness, my black identity. Um, and also, you know, sadly, I've had people ask me to put, you know, to which identity do I care more about? And they're all equal. Like, it's just, it's just, it's just me. And, you know, I'm a Jewish person, a black woman, uh, you know, a queer person, not in that particular order. Um, but sometimes depending on the spaces I, I'm in, um, you know, my blackness will show up before my, my Jewishness, uh, particularly in Jewish spaces, because I'm not often tracked as somebody who's Jewish. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for that, for reminding me of it. Yeah, I, I was going to say also so powerful and like, it's so interesting because Mordecai Kaplan, the founding thinker of Reconstructionism, his project was to help the children of Eastern European immigrants retain their Jewishness as they became American. And he used to say, you could be 100% Jewish and 100% American. And, and, and people would, and literally he would sometimes have challengers who would say, your math is off. And he said, I'm making a different point. And so that is not, I, so that's still true for sure, but the, the multiplicity of identities are so much more complex and we're really able to hold them more. And we still want all of them to be as powerful as they need to be as powerful as we want them to be and add up to that hundred percent. And so it's so powerful to hear you say it. And I think, you know, to, to both the modeling for Jews of color and the learning for folks who, who are, who, who are not of color, but who you know are looking for, for kind of holism, for kind of uh, authenticity in all of their different identity expressions. So I want to ask you to share your, what, like what's, what is the Torah that you want to offer? And like from this vantage point of a leader, like we, we are so happy and excited to provide this, this platform um, and to raise you up. And so, you know, what is it? I, I, I know it's kind of an elaboration of what you just said, but um, more what, what it is you want to put out into the world. Yeah, I want to change the way people think about and live with diversity. I think a lot of the ways that that commonly happens, it's not very helpful, it's not very constructive, and it, it makes it difficult for us to develop into the kind of communities and the kind of society that I think we really want to have. Um, and so my goal is to help, um, and for me, because I'm a tech scholar, um, it's especially looking at um, Tanakh and looking at um, sometimes other texts as well, but to think about how these texts that come from a world that's not our world, that don't take our rules for granted, can help um, invite us into fresh ways of thinking about how we see the world and how we see one another. Is there a text you, you could unpack for us as like a demonstration? Sure. So <laughs> I, guess, I guess you may hear from my book title that I'm a big fan of Genesis and I um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about Genesis in this regard is that it's so frustrating for someone coming in with modern expectations about identity, because we have this idea, there, there, there's even someone who wrote a book about it, that, you know, I, um, identity is a group of people in their place, kind of that's what it means, a group of people in their land. And yet we have the book of Genesis, and it comes to an end, we get 50 chapters of Genesis, and Israel is still not fully a people. 
and still not fully in its place, that it spends all this time um, somewhere else, somewhere kind of on the way, but not yet arrived. And I think it's really important to be with Genesis and that, and not just sort of gloss over it and not just try to use history or something else to import those categories from somewhere else, but to, to let the text help us think about um, a space where those things are not determinative and how we might inhabit it. Oh my God, I wish I was a student again, because, <laughs> because I have spent my postgraduate life being a student of Exodus, because I've, I've found that Exodus has helped me in, um, in, in, in helping the white Jewish community move towards anti-racism. I see it as, um, you know, uh, a book of, you know, people moving from enslavement, liberation, freedom, and then, we're, you know, we're still trying to get to redemption. But now, I'm, now I want to like go back, which we will have the chance to do very soon. But look at Genesis through this other, other lens. Yeah, and I think Genesis really sets up Exodus in that way. Um, I, I think even right off the bat, um, you know, in that in that first chapter of Exodus, um, we see Pharaoh talking about the talking about the Israelites like the way I would talk about bugs in my house. You know, this like they're swarming, they're everywhere, ah, icky. Um, this kind of horrified reaction, and what are we going to do about it? And the language that that Pharaoh uses is the language of blessing from Genesis. It's that same kind of fruitful swarming language um, that comes right out of creation. And so for Pharaoh, he's only conceiving as a problem, but it already sets up this um, conflict between Pharaoh's way of seeing the world where diversity is a threat and this Genesis way of seeing in the world where there is this kind of interconnection and interdependence. Um, and then kind of through the book, we get this the kind of the clash of the two different worldviews and how they play out. Wow. I love that. I, I love do. that. So, well, I think you and I have had, already had several conversations about, um, about interdependence. And I, I feel like I am drawing on the Jewish, the Jewish past. I'm drawing on the, the Jewish teachings and texts on interdependence because I think it's the only roadmap for going forward. Yeah you know, that we will forget about thriving. We will only survive if we understand more deeply how interdependent we all are, how interconnected we are to each other to the, to, and, to, and to the earth. Um, and so I, you know, can you, can you talk a little bit more about, um, I mean, that's kind of like the, the, the counterpart of diversity, I guess it's, it goes hand in hand with like, you know, uh, with a, a, a positive valuation and embrace of, of diversity. Yeah, so the image that I like to use to, to think about how Genesis presents diversity is the image of a tree. And so if you, if you picture a tree, especially if you picture a fruit tree, a fruit tree can only bear fruit if the branches diverge while being connected to a common root. So you need both. You need the connection and you need the, the diversity and the difference in the spreading. And I think the structure of Genesis emphasizes that point because every time there's a distinction made, every time something happens that seems to call that point into question, the text reaffirms it. So when Abraham and Lot go their separate ways, um, immediately after that, Lot gets in trouble and Abraham rides to his rescue, rides, runs to his rescue. Um, you know, so things like that kind of throughout Genesis, anytime something happens where you might think, okay, you know, we're not doing this anymore, 
the text reasserts it. And I think that's even why someone like Isaac plays such a small role in the book of Genesis, um, because he's the only person who doesn't have a rival. His rival Ishmael gets sent away. The ages are a little weird in Genesis, um, whether he's he's a young child and how old anybody is at the time. Um, But Ishmael gets sent away. And so Isaac doesn't have a rival. the way that, you know, Abraham had Lot and Jacob had Esau, Sarah had Hagar and Rachel had Leah, you know, everybody else had rivals. Isaac doesn't have one. And so he can't model that. And so he becomes kind of squeezed in between Abraham and Jacob, who can model that more fully. That is so interesting. Yeah. Can you make the leap to how, how these insights from your scholarship will translate into your leadership? Does, does it feel too, I mean, I, I want to like, let our listeners know, Amanda has been in the job for two months. It is very new. She's a fantastic learner and it is very new. And so, you know, I, I she wasn't prepared for this question and it just might be too soon, but do you have a sense of how to shift from these academic insights into, into the, because it's more than academic leadership. It's also about rabbinic formation. It's about create, raising up leaders. Yes. I mean, it, at this point, it, it, it speaks to things like how we think about what a Jewish education is, what a Jewish community is. Um, it very much kind of speaks speaks to those things. It speaks to how we live with each other in community, and especially at a time when COVID is, is bringing up a lot of challenges for people, um, as people need and want different things, and as people... Um, have different strategies and different um, ways of responding to the pandemic, Um, you know, all these kinds of things that get stirred up. I think there's a sense in which thinking about how we live together with our differences is very important. Um, This may sound a little abstract, but I also think there's a sense in which, you know, what it means to move on from the previous presidency and where we're living in a country that's really battered and fragmented in a lot of ways, um, where the very concept of a social fabric has really come under attack. And how can we reestablish a sense of community? How can we continue to think about what it means to be joined um, in places where we live, um, in the Jewish people, with people who disagree with us about really foundational political issues, is that even possible? Is there a concept of working together for a common good? Or is it just about kind of hunkering down with our like-minded people? You know, is there a way that we can constructively um, inhabit those things? Is there a way that we can live into um, a sense of common purpose and community building? Or are we sort of stuck in our corners, articulating our talking points and rejecting each other? Sandra, I mean, I, I think I want to I want to ask Sandra you whether how, how this ties into your work as the our director of racial diversity, equity, and inclusion, and just observe really quickly, Amanda, that I think that that very question really animates our project, evolve groundbreaking Jewish conversations, and and also like our joint Israel commission, the premise that we can be in I call it covenantal community across difference. We must. It's the um, it's so essential for us to move forward and we're, we're coming up on the high holidays and like this, this image of um, this comes from a lay a conversation with a lay person where she said, I want to be able to say Kol Nidre with, with everyone in, in my community, whatever their politics are, whatever, wherever they stand. And it's such a 
poignant image that it's not just pray together on, on Shabbat, but on Kol Nidre, where we begin by saying like, we are all sinners. We, can, we, we begin like from, from, from such a place of humility, which is so different from that certainty that you were just talking about. You know, I just, before this call, I was finishing up a blessing, um, a closing blessing for um, phone conversation, a Zoom, Zoom call. And one of the things that I said in there, and I'm still working on it, so the language may change, but, you know, may we continue to have compassion for those who um, see the world differently than we, than we do. Um, and recently, a few months, a few months ago, I got, had a call from a Jew of color in North Carolina and a lot of things happened in that call. But one of the things that the person told me was that they can't pray with people who, uh, actually in this case, they can't pray, pray with Zionists. And, um, and that, that makes, that makes me sad. Like I want, a house of all, uh, a house for all people. There's like an Isaiah quote in there somewhere, and I and and there are people out there who believe that I should be a rabbi one particular way, um, and you know if I don't fit that mold, that that might be a little challenging for them. Or they want me to maybe be further on the left or further on the right, depending on who I'm who I'm talking to, and um, how I move through the world is I I always want to try to find commonality. That's one of the reasons why I became a rabbi, um, to find, let's find common ground. Why waste all this time arguing about the things we disagree with? Let's first find common ground and build from there. And, you know, a concern that I have is that there are, there are students that I went to school with who, who are awesome rabbis and, you know, rabbinical students also, you know, I, I, I find sometimes have unbendable views that, that don't, um, that don't I think I, I worry that they are, they don't allow themselves to see the fullness of of, of human human beings, um, and in your in your role as as the dean, like helping our students who need the help, not all of them do, but you know the, um, to deal with difference because there's so much right now in our society that is telling you to not like X because of whatever, to not like this person because of whatever. And we have people that are coming into rabbinical schools and colleges that don't have nuance or can't see nuance. And what you said is like, I, I like I, I want our students, I want all people, I want us to find common ground um, and to, to remember that we're, we're all created in the divine image. We all have a divine spark in all of us. And how do you know, how do you teach? Um, students to really have compassion for the other um, and that this is the society that we're growing that that we are coming into yeah yeah there's so there's so much in that I think I think part of it is sometimes the way we deal with problems is not really constructive so sometimes what happens when somebody says or does the wrong thing, there's this kind of, we excommunicate that person and then we're okay. And I think that sort of is an overreaction and an underreaction because it's an overreaction because it acts as if nothing that person has to offer is of value because of this one thing. And it's an underreaction because it assumes everyone else is off the hook, that if we reject the right people, the rest of us are okay. And we don't really have to um, think about things or do any work. And that's one of the reasons I think it's so important to think about some of these issues around identity and the way that they're 
baked into the normal. It's not just the exceptions to the rule. It's just the everyday categories and things that we use are not helpful and are not structured to help us build a better community. So sometimes it's rethinking that normal and creating a new normal. Um, in another direction, um, I also think something really that really speaks to what you describe is the example of the prophets and how they identify with the people they criticize. Um, mm. That even as they're articulating these really elaborate critiques, they're still it's still always we. Um, and I think there's something really important about that to be able to hold people in that way, even as everything in us is telling us that the choices they're making or the ways that they're going about things are wrong. It's really hard, but I, I think it's really important. Something that helps me, something that helped me, especially through some of the worst things of the last few years is I just, I would go um, walk or run in my community and just you know, watching the news, it kind of, I get this view of the world and of the country and of what's happening. That's really discouraging. And then just being in the community and just walking by people and saying, hello, just hello, you know, just waving mm -hmm. to people and kind of realizing like, we can do this. We can be a community together. We can connect on a human level and we can work through all of this. Um, and to think about kind of how I experienced this just with people who live in my hometown, how much more for rabbinical students who have so much more binding them to each other, how much more for the Jewish people who have such, who have so much more binding us to each other um, that we can draw on to find a way through, to stick with each other. Mm -hmm. I wrote down, it's still always we. It's such yeah. a, it's, it's so potent. It's so powerful. Yeah. Um, we're coming to the end of our time. And as I mentioned earlier, we are recording this the week before uh, Rosh Hashanah. We're recording this late in Elul. And I just thought we should um, wind down with a little bit of a taste of the high holidays, a little bit of reflection. So because we don't have all that much time, I, I wanted to, I was wondering for each of you, like what about the high holidays is really resonant for you? What's really uh, at the front of your minds? You know, uh... One of the things that I wrote in this blessing that I alluded to a minute ago is that we are, we are, you know, like 5781 was um, in the same way that 5780 did. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, but, but, you know, um, I, I, there's hope, there's hope in our future. I really believe there's hope in our future. And this time of year should remind us to renew our renew our energy, um, to be hopeful, to be mindful, um, to remember that we're all created in divine image, and to take care of ourselves and our health, so that we can truly have the blessings of a new year. And yeah, that's that's what's on my mind right now. Yeah, this is a, it's an interesting um, time for me. I mean, the, the, I feel like so much of my life is sort of tracked through the high holidays. Um, growing up, most of my um, experience of Judaism came through my grandparents. And I remember kind of going to show with them on the holidays and, you know, people had tickets and I didn't know where tickets came from. And so when I, as an adult, I'm trying to find my way into the community, in some ways it was a symbol of the barrier because I didn't know how that worked. I didn't know, can you just show up? Or you, what, how does this work? It, it was, um, it, it was um, 
in some ways a sign of the wall. Then later on, I think there was a sense in which having kids and raising them in a community in a lot of ways gave me the gave me what I missed by not growing up that way. It sort of took me through those life cycle stages and it gave me this sort of deeper understanding of the meaningful love is not just on the individual level, but what it means to stand together, um, what it means to be there as a people. And when I say be there as a people, we're standing together and we're davening and we're in the hall having a conversation and we're chasing a kid and you know we're doing all these things, but we're we're doing it collectively. It made me understand that um, in a different way than I ever had before. And now, you know, we're coming to the holidays again and I've just moved. And so with people I'm just meeting and with the pandemic, I'm not even sure we're going to be able to dive in in person. So I'm not even sure what that's going to look like. So not with my community that I've gotten so close to. I'm not with, um, you know, the people who've watched my kids grow up. I'm, um, I may not even be in the room with people at all. And so what does it mean to... Um, to engage the holidays from that vantage point. And I think there's um, invitation in there to kind of think through some of the resources in the tradition, thinking about things like exile um, and thinking about how people are wrestling with how can we be the Jewish people if we're not in our place with our stuff and our people and, and to kind of to be without those things and what it means to drill down and to find something else and to be with the, um, the awkwardness of it. Thanks to you both. I mean, I, I resonate so deeply. Um, I, I, for me, I have been, I, I've been trying to find the balance between looking really forthrightly at, at everything that is hard and find resilience for sure. And, 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 and even, um, figure out how to bolster others as well. And, you know, I've needed it personally and I've needed it. Um, you know, I, I'm aware as a rabbi and as the leader of the movement, that that's what I want to be putting out. And, um, I think I was, I was really deeply affected. Um, I read this beautiful, amazing article called grief belongs in social movements. Can we embrace it by it's in, in these times by Malkia Devich Cyril and I, 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 was, I feel so grateful to be religiously oriented because I do feel like I'm part of a social movement and we have all the tools and resources of, of religion available to us, including a willingness and a capacity to look straightforward at grief. And so for me, like, so it's, I, I think it's a lot about paradox. I think it's about, about, about like being able to hold both the grief and loss and the uh, potential and um, an inspiration all at once. And for me, more than ever, I mean, I've always loved the sounds of the shofar, but it's really been about like imagining the shofar service on Rosh Hashanah and that like that tekiya, and then into shvarim and brokenness and then into tru'ah, even more brokenness, like a complete and utter shattering and then back to tekiah, back to a kind of wholeness. And so for me, I'm just like trying to really not just thrill to this like really ancient wild sound and how it makes my my chest vibrate, but also feel like there's a message here. There's a message here. I can internalize this. I can take it in. I can do it for myself. I can do it with others. We can do it for our community. Um, so that's, that's for me, what's really rising up. Anybody want to have any last words or thoughts? I'm just uh, grateful to be in conversation with 
um, two amazing people. And I'm just really excited that Amanda is uh, part of our community and um, students are gonna learn some amazing things from you. Absolutely, Sandra. And thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Dr. Amanda Mbubi. Thank you so much for being with us today. And for more information on today's episode, you can look on Hashivenu's website, which is hashivenu.fireside.fm. You can also find more resources on reconstructingjudaism.org and on Ritual Well. And it goes without saying, please, please subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Rabbi Sandra Lawson. And I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman. And you've been listening to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience.